This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to Men Talk on Plains FM 96.9, a playful search for understanding and appreciation of men. I'm Ian Ferguson, coordinator of International Men's Day in New Zealand. Today I speak with Nurit Zubri about her research on the experiences of divorced men in mediation. That's the intervention between conflicting parties to promote reconciliation, not trying to discover inner peace by thinking nothing. <laughs> Nurit was a lawyer in Israel before moving to New Zealand and managing two businesses. Recently, she moved on to study mediation. Welcome, Nurit. Kia ora, and um, thank you for having me here. <laughs> it's, it's a pleasure. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So, Nurit, have you always been interested in mediation and dispute resolution? Um, I have been since I, when I was a lawyer in my, you know, about 30 years ago when I started as a young lawyer in Israel, I was fairly quickly disillusioned with law because all I've seen is people paying a lot of money to lawyers and I've never seen anyone come out of a legal battle happy or, you know, winning. All I see is, you know, usually to people losing and, and being upset. So that's what drove me um, away from the law. But back then, mediation was quite a young thing, uh, quite a young profession. And I remember sort of being really fascinated by it, but it stayed with me at the back of my head for about 20-something um, years until I... Um, I sort of sold my last business and and decided to pursue it as my new career. There's a joke. The, the joke about lawyers is that the lawyers win and, uh, <laughs> and no one else does. Yeah, but you know, the, there's nowhere that this truth is more true than in family law, because if there's one thing that's important to parents, um, you know, when they when they separate. And, and we do have, you know, really high divorce rates in all Western countries, including New Zealand, between 40 and 50 percent. And, you know, the one thing that's important to parents when they separate is the well-being of their children. Hmm. They do not want to hurt their children. And there's one thing that the research shows about children after divorce is that there's two main things that they need to have to maintain um, their well-being. One is to have a, a meaningful relationship with both parents. And the second one is a low level of conflict between the parents. Parents that end up in the family court in a legal battle will never be able to have a good relationship between them. It's conflict, isn't it? It is. And that's why, that's why mediation came in. All over the world for the last 40 years, mediation is becoming the main, supposed to be the, the main avenue for people to sort out um, disputes about care of children. And New Zealand enacted a law in 2014 that mediation is supposed to be mandatory for couples before they go 
to the family court. The reality, unfortunately, that I found in my study is very, very different. Mm. Um, there's around 2,000 family mediations happening every year in New Zealand in comparison to around 7,000 cases that go to the family court. Now, it should have mm. been exactly the opposite. Mediation has a really good success rate, even between, you know, people who have high conflict. Um, in New Zealand, the statistics the Ministry of Justice provided me is that 60% of family mediation end in full agreement and another 20% end in partial agreement. So that's quite a good success rate. Mm. But instead, people don't go to mediation and they go to the family um, court. Part of it is because lawyers encourage people to go to the family court because there's no lawyers in mediation. But what I aimed to check in my study is whether it's also because men don't like mediation. Right. And that, that was sort of my thinking behind this because mediation is a very um, emotional um, process. You know, you talk about emotions, you talk about the difficult stuff, you try to get to the bottom of, you know, why people are so upset with each other, maybe mm -hmm. finding a way to resolve things. And typically men don't feel very comfortable in this environment. So what I wanted to check, what I set out to check is how men really feel when, when they go mm. through mediation. That was the, the reasoning behind my study. Right, yes. And, and hopefully the outcome is that more people end up going into mediation because we're a bit smarter about it. I really hope so. I hope so. maybe men who would uh, listen to this will think twice before they go to court and actually choose mediation. Mm, mm. I mean, most men I spoke to were not, the majority were not happy with what happened in mediation. What I'm trying to do is to go back to the industry, to go back to the mediation industry and to say, look, this is what we need to change to make mediation more responsive to men's needs. I've heard that it's quite difficult to get men to be involved in research. Did you have any, any trouble finding men for your, for your study? Yes, I had. It wasn't easy, like you say. And my study is one of very few studies, even in the world, that mm. have been done on men. Because typically, um, you know, even the, the general studies, they've done quite a lot of research about about family law in New Zealand over the last years. But when you look at the figures, you find that around 86% of the respondents to these um, studies mm. are women and, and a very small percentage are men. So, yeah, men are not, um, don't typically come forward to talk about things. And... Um, I was looking to recruit around 20 men for qualitative study, um, in-depth interviews. I was hoping to do it with 20 men, but I ended up having only 13. So, yeah, it wasn't easy. And I really appreciated the men who, who did come forward because it wasn't easy for them to talk about. You discovered four themes from talking to the men. Uh, what were those themes? The four main themes that came up in the interviews, the first one was um, 
that men experience a very, very um, strong grief reaction to, a, to the divorce. The second one was around devaluation of fatherhood in the mediation and in general in the society. Mm. The third one was they had a very strong sense of bias against them and, you know, kept saying that mediators were more in favor of the mother. And the last theme was about um, a very, very strong feeling that came from each and every one of the 13 men was that they felt powerless at mediation. Mm. I want to go into each one of these more in depth because to me, when I, you know, when I started diving into it and I looked at the literature around the world, studies that was done about these things, I was really surprised. I thought that men don't care so much, hmm. that, you know, women are more sensitive and they care more and things like that, but that men don't really care. But if we look at the statistics, and again, this is statistics not from New Zealand because there isn't hmm. statistics about New Zealand, uh, but men, for example, commit suicide 4.8 times more than women after divorce. Men are nine times more likely to be admitted to psychiatric hospitals after divorce. Uh, men's rate of involvement in car accidents doubles when they check six months before divorce and six months after divorce. And men have much higher rates of physical illness after divorce. So things like cancer, heart attack, diabetes, all these things um, are found in men in much higher rates following divorce as opposed as compared to men who are still, you know, in relationships. The things you're talking about sounds like I would associate with some a, a traumatic event, you know, something very stressful and, and um, life-changing. Yes, I mean, people in general rate divorce as the second most difficult life um, experience after death of a spouse, which is number one. Although I have to say, I often think, you know, when I dived into the, this world of divorce, I actually think that possibly it's, diff it's more difficult than death of a spouse because people talk about a feeling of, sh very strong feeling of shame mm. after divorce or failure. People talk about how suddenly friends stop being their friends mm. and they are being isolated. And, um, you know, when, when somebody dies on you, people are very supportive. You know, they cover you in support, in, in food, in, in inviting you over, coming over to you and all that. But people don't show this level of support after divorce. Mm. So this really tough experience is also exacerbated by by suddenly being isolated and feeling terrible about yourself mm. and feeling like you failed. It's you know, I think our society doesn't really appreciate and support people enough in general. People might have the view that divorce is like the, the solution to a problem. <laughs> rather than creating its own problems. Yeah. 
I think, you know, you know what's the main thing, I think? The main thing is that we don't talk about it enough. Hmm. There's a lot of things. We, we started talking, you know, more openly about mental health and about other problems, but you don't hear much. You don't come across, you know, programs on TV or that about divorce. We don't talk about it enough. And that's what makes people feel, you know, more ashamed and lonely and, and isolated when it actually happens. And it happens a lot. It's not a rare mm. thing that the divorce rates are so high that it's really surprising that we don't. It is. It is. Um, I'm sure everyone knows a few people who have been divorced, um, and yet they probably never talk to them about it. That's right. So, you know, the contributing factors that make make it more difficult for men, I think, one of them is that um, women initiate the majority of divorce. So women initiate statistically around 70% of divorce. Uh Typically, again, you know, not in all cases, but typically the man, the father is the one who leaves the family home mm. and loses day-to-day -day contact with the children, which is huge. Mm. That's huge. If you're a father who is used to coming home every evening, spending a few hours with your children, tucking them into sleep, suddenly seeing them for, you know, a few hours every week and sometimes without overnight uh, stay when the children are very young, it's a huge thing that, you know, adds to the feeling of isolation and loneliness. Mm -hmm. Men often lack a good support system. Yeah. And one of the things that research tells us is that even men who have lots of really good friends often don't talk to them about the, the tough stuff. Yeah. You know, they might go out with them drinking and all that, but they will not necessarily share with them, you know, how much they're hurting and how much it's difficult for them because there's an expectation that they would be strong and show, mm. you know, a really stoic facade about, you know, the, the difficult things. So mm. that, of course, makes it even tougher. In general, men are socialized not to not to expose what we call the vulnerable emotions. And men, you know, we socialize our boys um, and our men to only show um, the powerful emotions such as anger, pride, and contempt. These are typically what researchers say that we, we tell little boys that they're allowed to express. Hmm. So these, these men are grieving for their lost children, even though they're not 100% lost. They are. They are. And, you know, in, in my interviews, there were fathers who told me it felt like my children died. Mm. But I couldn't even grieve for them because they were not really dead. But it felt like they died and disappeared from my life. And it's a terrible feeling because even grief, you know, what we call healthy grief has some stages that you go through and you can, you can heal, you know, eventually. Mm. But when somebody can't actually even go through the grief process properly, mm. it's, it puts men, you know, you start understanding the statistics of suicide and of yeah. psychiatric um, hospitals and all that. It, you know, it starts making more sense when you think about it. Mm. Now, one of the phenomena that really threw me 
in the literature that I read, what I found most fascinating is the phenomena of absent fathers. Hmm. Now, we all know about these fathers who, after divorce, just disappear from the life of their children. And it was actually in the United States in the 1980s, it was a huge phenomenon up to around 50% of fathers used to disengage completely from their children after divorce. And that prompted some researchers, especially one, there's a Canadian research called Edward Crook, who um, spent a few years studying absent fathers. Mm. And um, the, the first thing, you know, in, in one of the um, articles that I read is he explains the importance of fathers by mm. using the statistics on, of, on absent fathers. So he found that 85% of the youth in prison have an absent father. Hmm. He found that 90% of runaway children have an absent father. 71% of high school dropouts have an absent father. And children with absent fathers have much higher rates of depression and suicide, victims of abuse, um, youth pregnancy, substance abuse. All that is just giving, you know, a bit of a, an idea of the importance of fathers mm -hmm. for these children. I, um, I came across a study a while ago which found that children of absent fathers have shorter telomeres, which is a sign of ageing. As you age, the telomeres in your cells get shorter. So there's a biological effect on the children. And they looked at divorced parents and um, fathers who had died as well. So they, and and it didn't doesn't make a difference. I think oh, there might have been a small difference, but there's a real biological effect on the kids. Yeah, there is a really devastating one. But the most interesting thing for me in this whole research was that Crook found when he was talking, interviewing absent fathers, and he was asking them about their relationship with their children before the divorce, he found that actually these absent fathers were not the fathers who didn't care and, you know, didn't come home until late and didn't really see their children. He found that the absent fathers were actually the fathers who were most connected to their children during their marriage. They were the fathers who, you know, spent time with their children, came to the kids' activities after schools, who did the coaching with their children and things like that. And what happened to these fathers when they had to change their status from the close emotionally um, mm. engaged father who spends, you know, a few hours every day with the child to suddenly be a father who comes and picks them up for, for, you know, three, four hours, takes them out to dinner in a restaurant or something. What they described is that these visits, the, the fact that they were so brief and artificial and don't include the day-to-day -day activities like, you know, picking up from school, tucking to bed and all these things that you do, these rituals that you do with, with the kids, it was just too painful for these fathers to suddenly become this visiting parent instead mm. of a fully involved and immersed in their lives. And because they couldn't bear the pain, they disengaged. Mm. Which just tells you the, the depth 
of pain, you know, of someone who was very close to their children suddenly do this drastic move and, and really disengage. The pain must have been so mm. extreme that they couldn't do otherwise. They couldn't adjust to that. Where I think fathers who were not really involved were okay to come and, you know, pick up the kids for, for dinner a couple of times a week. And, and it, that, it wouldn't have necessarily been too much different to the yeah. involvement they had before. Yes. You found that when the fathers were in mediation, that fatherhood wasn't valued. Yes. This is something that, you know, it does, it's not just at mediation. It did come up at mediation where mediators were actually would actually tell fathers who, who were asking for 50% um, parenting, um, for shared parenting um, over their children, a few mediators actually told them, uh, look, you know, you can't compare yourself with the mother who even thinks like, you can't compare yourself with the mother who carried the children for nine months in her body. You can't compare your connection with the child to the connection of the mother. And honestly, you know, I, I am a mother. <laughs> and, you know, it's not easy for me to say that, but it's not true. And today there's some fascinating research about um, gay couples, two men who raise children. And mm -hmm. there's a, especially uh, one really, really good research that's being done over the last 15 years at Cambridge University. They're comparing 40 families of gay adoptive father, 40 families of heterosexual adopting parents, and 40 families of uh, lesbian couples, comparing their level of um, parenting and it's a longitudinal study, which means, you know, they, they follow these children for the last 15 years at different ages. And, and actually what they find that is that in general, there's no difference in the quality of parenting between these three groups of parents, except the, the gay fathers actually have on, on one aspect, they have actually score higher than the other two groups, yeah. where all the other things that they're checking, the three groups have the same, a very similar sort of quality of parenting. We need to appreciate that men can be as good parents as mothers, but this message of you are not important enough, you, you can never be as good parent as the mother is very prevalent. Hmm. I've hmm. seen it around me all the time when, when my children were young and I was looking at myself and at my friends. And, you know, when the fathers would come and want to do something for the children, uh, we often sort of push them aside and say, oh, you, you know, you're hopeless. You, you can't change a nappy properly. Move aside. I'll show you how it's done. Or you can't prepare food for them properly. The problem with that is that, you know, mothers want parenting done their way. Fathers can parent, but they parent differently. So fatherhood does have a different quality mm. than motherhood, where usually fathers put mm. more emphasis on play. They put more emphasis on having fun with the children. They put more emphasis on emotional connection, on talking with the children about stuff. Mm. They do put less 
emphasis on feeding the children. They put less emphasis on maybe wrapping them in a few more layers. But honestly, what's more important? You know, how many children mm-hmm. die of starvation because they didn't eat, you know, another half a banana or something as compared to, you know, playing with the child and, 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 and having fun with them and showing them mm-hmm. love and warmth and affection and these things. So I think sometimes mothers judge fathers um, unfairly because they do it differently. Um, so I think that's one of the conversations, again, that we need to have as a society hmm. to hmm. really start respecting fatherhood as, as it is, not, not wanting fathers to be the same as mothers. I think in the media there's a lot of there's a lot of jokes about husbands and fathers being useless at home like there's yeah. there's, there's Homer Simpson <laughs> it's just as an idiot and Marge is the smart one it it does kind of show that generally we don't appreciate fathers as much as we could I think it's exactly like sexist jokes against women I don't know, a few years ago, everybody used to laugh at um, sexist jokes about um, women. And today we don't tolerate it anymore because mm. we know that, you know, it might be a harmless joke, but it actually leads to devaluation of, of a whole gender. Mm. It's exactly the same thing with these jokes about fathers. It's really easy to, you know, to buy into it and laugh at it, but... When the relationship stays intact, it probably is not too tragic. But when the relationship breaks and everyone who is married is in a relationship have to, have to, you know, entertain the idea that it's possible that this relationship is not going to last forever. Mm. You know, the equal father, fathering is something that actually fathers have to fight for. Mm-hmm. You know, the, every young father who, who has a baby needs to fight for their rights to do 50% of the care and to be involved in every aspect. And if mm-hmm. the mother tells him, no, you're not doing it right or that, you know, just say, look, this is how I do it. You might mm-hmm. do it your way, and that's okay. I don't criticize you for how you do it, but this is how I do it, and it's okay. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm their father. That's how I want to do it. You've you've reminded me of how um, men ended up being allowed into the birthing rooms uh, in the United States. It was actually a, a a father sued a hospital because he wasn't allowed in. Oh wow! Um, and that that started the changes. And I imagine that he <laughs> that wasn't a simple process. It's it's a um, but he felt that strongly about it. And from there on, um, that started the change. I think it was back in the 70s. Amazing, no? It's not ancient history. So we need more people like him. All right, let's let's take a break. It was in another lifetime, one of toil and blood. When blackness was a virtue, the road was full of mud. I came in from the wilderness, a creature void of form. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. If I pass this way again, you can rest assured I'll always do my best for her, on that I give my word 
In a world of steel-eyed death and men who are fighting to be warm Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm Not a word was spoke between us There was a little risk involved Everything up to that point had been left unresolved Try imagining a place where it's always safe and warm Come in, she said, I'll give you a shelter from the storm I was burned out from exhaustion, buried in the hail Poisoned in the bushes and blown out on the trail Hunted like a crocodile, ravaged in the corn Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm Suddenly I turned around and she was standing there With silver bracelets on her wrists and flowers in her hair She walked up to me so gracefully and took my crown of thorns. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. Now there's a wall between us, something that's been lost. I took too much for granted, I got my signals crossed. Just between till it all began on a non-eventful morn. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm Well, the deputy walks on hard nails and the preacher rides a mount But nothing really matters much, it's doom alone that counts And the one-eyed undertaker, he blows a feudal horn Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm I've heard newborn babies wailing like a moaning dove And old men with broken teeth stranded without love Do I understand your question, man? Is it hopeless and forlorn? Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm In a little hilltop village, they gambled for my clothes a bargain for salvation and she gave me a lethal dose I offered up my innocence I got repaid with scorn Come in, she said, I'll give you a shelter from the storm well, I'm living in a foreign country But I'm bound to cross the line Beauty walks a razor's edge Someday I'll make it mine If I could only turn back the clock to when God and her were born Come in, she said, I'll give ya shelter from the storm
You're listening to Men Talk on Plains FM 96.9. I'm talking to Nurit Zubri today about father's experience of family mediation. Earlier in the show, you talked about men's feeling powerlessness, and I think that's that's a concern to me because if men don't feel that they can uh, find something that's working, then then the kind of last tool in the box is, is a hammer. <laughs> we, we don't want we don't want people using brute force and being violent to other people or themselves. So um, perhaps you could talk a wee bit about. I don't know if that, that makes sense, but um, perhaps you can talk about how men were, were feeling powerless. It makes a lot of sense. Um, and the 13 men that I've spoken to um, spoke about, you know, they were, they were not all the same, but the one experience that they have all shared is that feeling of powerlessness. They said things like... Uh, she sits there in a position of power. All the power was in her hands. I felt completely powerless. Um, she just says no to everything I ask for, and it, it all happens her way. And this powerlessness really repeated itself. You know, it was a very, very central thing. Now, mm. when I looked in the literature, it was all over the place. A lot of studies that were done about divorce, you know, when, when divorce started being a really prevalent thing, said, and maybe I'll, I'll quote one of these researchers in the 1990s who said, with divorce, men experience a decline in their sphere of control and women experience an increase in theirs. So, you know, the fact that men feel powerless is actually comes from in a way it's doubled up it is because usually in relationships men do have more power than women but it's also of course because after the divorce they have so little power and again because they they usually move out of the house because the the mother usually stays with the children and she's the one who says you know you can see the children on this day, on that day, this number of hours or not. So the fact that it's so extreme for men is understandable from, mm. you know, whatever point of view you look at it. What's the big problem about it? I mean, I'm sure that there's a lot of women there who says, you know, serves them right. They thought they could be, um, you know, dominating us during relationships um, here they are now, they don't have any power, and that's okay. Now it's our turn to have the power. But what's the problem? The problem is that psychologically, every person have an, has an expectation to control their life, to control what's happening in their life, and to, make, to have choices, and to control these choices. Um, there's a psychological um, theory called um, non-controlled distress, which says that if this reasonable expectation to be in control is taken away from a person, it causes a really severe level of distress. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it causes people to desperately try in any way possible to gain control. Mm -hmm. Now, 
we spoke about the fact that, you know, men are not very good at expressing emotions and, uh, you know, often the only emotion they, they are allowed to express is anger. And think of a situation in the mediation where these fathers feel powerless. They feel mm. like the most important thing in their life right now, their, their access to their children is taken away from them and they have no control. Mm-hmm over what happens, the level of distress they're in is huge. Mm. And the fact that there's, you know, anger bursts and, and you know, maybe sometimes sort of violent uh, behavior, to me, you know, when I hear in the news about somebody who's, you know, poured petrol over his wife and children and light them, I think non-control distress. I think... Mm. What level of distress this man got to, you know, not that I condone it in any way, mm, but mm. you have to think where is it coming from and how can we prevent this violence at 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 the core, you know, mm. where it originates from. Because at the end of the day, we do have high levels of family violence and it is known that around divorce and separation, the levels of violence usually increase. So this is the most dangerous point in the life mm. of, a, of a couple um, around violence. And mediation is supposed to give both people power in the situation, isn't it? So it's... Exactly. It's, it's absolutely uh, no good that it's not doing that. A lot of men who are seeking control... Whether they try mediation and don't agree and then go to the family court or they decide to go to the family court because there they think they have control, you know, they Mm. take a good lawyer, they go to court. And in most cases, they find out that they don't have any, if anything, they have less control at court. Mm -hmm. You know, in order to maximize the potential of family mediation, one of the things that I ask mediators to do is to show a lot more respect hmm. for fathers. Hmm. Not tell them, you know, you, you're, not that, you're not as important as a mother, but show respect and give them, give them the opportunity to have an equal voice. Give hmm. them the opportunity hmm. to feel like, you know, what they're saying matters. Mm. Give them mm. an experience of, of, of powerfulness, you know, or what we call empowerment in mediation. Just feeling like someone listen, has listened to you and understands where you're coming from it would be such a relief, I think, just as a starting point. It is. It is. Uh, I, I did have uh, a few of my participants did talk about, you know, the feeling that the mediator did listen to them, uh, but they were the minority. Mm. The majority of them spoke about a system that doesn't care about the father, about mediators being biased, and some said openly biased. Um, you said before about um, fathers aren't as important as mothers. There was, was something someone said, yeah. 
that's one that's one aspect the second aspect you know some of the pictures that um participants um described were a woman who was very emotional a mother who was very emotional as as you know naturally happens in mediation a mother who sits there and cries all the time and they said you know they the mediator tended to to prote- to be protective mm. of her and to give mm. her more um opportunities to talk and to give her more say about what's going to happen because she was you know more weak i mean some fathers mm. accuse their ex partner of you know pretending to be but i i don't think anyone uh, mediation is tough mediation mm. is not easy for anyone the fact that you have to sit around the same table with a person you're in very high conflict with is mm. very very tough mm. you know some of these men i spoke to who were you know people who work in corporate in you know high high stress environment and all that told me mediation was the was the hardest experience i had in my life so you know i'm not for a minute um saying that it's not hard but women express the the difficulties through crying through mm. you know being vulnerable when men can't do that and and the more a mediator leans towards towards the mother the fathers feel more angry and more unrespected and more mm. powerless and the more they become angry the mediators become more protective of the mother it's a bit of a oh dear you know a vicious cycle that feeds itself and in a way you know i'm i'm sure a lot of mediators are aware of it but i'm not sure if they're aware of the extent that it gets to i think it's very easy to mm. judge you know as even as an experienced mediator to be judgmental and to say oh here here's a here's a violent man here's an angry man i came across a study that came out last year um about it was a, the association between gender and moral typecasting uh so moral typecasting is categorizing someone as either an agent or a patient and so an agent is a person who does something and a patient is a person who is has something done to them and then we make a moral judgment based on who we think is the person doing something and who is the person getting something done to <laughs> i hope i explained that well um and the anyway the results of the study is that we we tend to see men more as perpetrators than as victims like one of the things they did was they told a story about a conflict to the test people and then a week later they asked them about the gender of the people but they never told them the gender in the first place <laughs> and it ends up that people thought that the person who was um the aggressor in the in the story was a man more often than the other way around yeah we're all riddled with unconscious biases that um yeah run our lives in many ways i, I was going to ask um how many what's the 
the ratio of men to women in in mediators? <laughs> yes, uh, I don't have the exact figures, but I can tell you that the vast majority of family mediators are women. So that's probably not helpful. And, you know, there, there are places that actually acknowledge that. For example, I was reading um, a study that was done in Norway about family mediation. And in Norway, every family mediation is done by two mediators, one male and one female. And I think it's very helpful for the parents to actually have two people in the room and, you know, having your own gender in the room. The organizations who organize family mediation get a lot of requests for for a male mm. mediator, and, and they are very busy, <laughs> these <Yeah>. mediators. <laughs> I, I don't think there's a reason for a female mediator to be, you know, more biased against fathers. Mm. But, yeah, this awareness does does have to be there. Um, if I can just say something about mediation, uh, there's a really big misconception, I think even between lawyers and definitely between people, you know, divorced uh, people, they think that mediation is the same as if, if they take lawyers and the lawyers negotiate, you mm. know, an arrangement between them. But mediation is a lot more than that. A good mediation is not about reaching an agreement. Of course, you know, at the end of the day, we want to reach an agreement between parents about, you know, how many hours um, a mm. week and what time they change and what they do at Christmas and what they do. But that is secondary. Family mediation is really all about rebuilding trust between mm. parents. You know, these parents will have to co-parent their children for many years to come and to have trust between parents, to trust that the other parents will do what they say they will do, to mm. be able to communicate between them, you know, in a good way, because there's nothing worse to a child than parents who don't communicate who say bad things about each other to the children, who pass messages through the children. There's nothing worse to children mm. than that. Mm. So mediation is all about sitting around the table, taking out, you know, stuff, putting it on the table, saying, I'm angry at you because you did this and this and this. Mm. And sometimes mm. somebody would say, I'm, you know, I'm really sorry. I, you know, I'm really sorry that I hurt you. People say things in mediation, things that have a really good potential to, to lower the level of animosity. You know, you're not going to be friends necessarily after it, but the understanding that you have to be co-parents mm. and that if you want your child to do well, you need to be able to communicate and you need to be able to trust each other. And these are the, the type of understandings that people do reach in, in, mm. in, in family mediation that goes well, you know, where, mm. where there's cooperation and there's a good mediator who, who does respect and empower both parties. And this does not happen when lawyers talk between them and reach some sort of an agreement. Yes, you end mm. up with a piece of paper 
with the details that you need, but you don't end up with a new type of relationship. You're still on opposing teams after the after the lawyers have been involved, but hopefully after mediation, you're on the same team. Yes, and I'm not saying it will happen, you know, in 100% of the mediations, but it does happen in, in a good, you know, a good percentage, even if it happens in, in only 50% or 40%, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a large number of children who are going to do much better. All right, let's, let's move on to the last question that I ask everyone. If you had a magic wish to make the world a better place, what would you wish for? And it's not more, you can't do more wishes. You only get one. <laughs> only one? <laughs> only one. I wish that we would stop putting our little boys into masculinity shackles that only make them miserable mm. and do not serve them in any way. And I wish we allow, you know, little boys to experience the whole, the whole range of, of emotions that are available to us and to be able to show vulnerability and to show emotions and, you know, not be mocked for it. I thought we were doing something bad to women with the patriarchy for years, but I'm actually realizing we're doing an even worse thing to boys who grow up to be men who can't experience the, the, the fullness of relationships, of life, of relationships with their children. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's, you know, it doesn't apply to 100% of the men, but still a vast majority is. Um, affected by it. So I hope we will stop doing it. Mm. Mm. That's beautiful. <laughs> uh, thank you. And, and thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, I hope we can make a difference to some of the people out there. I hope so. Thank you for the opportunity. I hope um, people will hear it. I think it's important for people to hear it. And if I... Um, if I make a difference even in one, you know, person's life, in one child's life, I'll be very happy. <laughs>